Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today, we have a sermon from Scott on living Christ-like in the face of evil. Recently, uh, one of our own Anglican leaders, her name is Tish Warren Harrison, wrote an article in Christianity Today in which she took issue with Jen Hatmaker, who's pretty big. At issue was how bloggers can be monitored theologically, which they're not. These were titious questions in the CT article. Questions that I have asked many times myself as a blogger. Where do bloggers and speakers like Jen Hatmaker, she asked, derive their authority to speak and teach? And who holds them accountable for their teaching? What kinds of theological training and ecclesial credentialing are necessary for Christian teachers and leaders and bloggers? None. What interpretive body and tradition do these bloggers speak out of? Who decides what is true Christian orthodoxy? And how do we, as listeners, decide whom to trust as a Christian leader and teacher? So she's asking these questions. As an Anglican, she has answers to these sorts of questions. Her next words tell the truth, unlike many are unwilling to tell. She said, in this new cyber age, authority comes not from church or the academic guild, but from popularity. Hits on a viral post lead to book deals, which lead to taking the conference stages. Winsome, relatable writing Good storytelling and compelling life experiences are often as crucial to audience size and therefore to authority as theological teaching, presuppositions, or argument. Christian bloggers and conference speakers have become a sort of cyber age equivalent to megachurch pastors, garnering huge following based on a cult of personality and holding extensive power and influence, yet often lacking any accountability to formal structures of church governance. That's the end of what Tish says. I have sat in green rooms with some of the people that she's talking about. I've sat over lunches and coffees and heard them talk, and I can say that I've sat over libations with others. Not a few of them are luminaries in the conference speaking guild, jetting all over the world speaking, publishers knocking on their doors with six-figure contracts, promises up the gazoo, is that understandable, for marketing. And I have muttered to myself and opined to Chris, and wondered in front of friends and now in front of you how such persons many times can rise in the Christian world of teaching and speaking and writing 
and theological expertise and authority. Tish spoke her mind, and so did her critics. They pounded on her. But I have to tell you, I was a snoop on this one. What interested me the most was how she was going to respond to all these criticisms, because they were coming at her fast and furiously. She's big, you know, and Twitter is big, and people just say what they want because they have crazy names and you don't know who they are. I call this crowd pounding, and it is powerful, and it is mean at times, and many, many people have experienced the negative side of crowd pounding. One person after another, some of those who were in those conference speaking big contract books with publishers, they were the luminaries who were pounding on Tish. And I wondered how she would respond as an Anglican priest at Resurrection South Austin's church in Texas. And I'll get to her response later. Called suspense, Jay. <laughs> it's as close as I ever get to novels. <laughs> I could just give you the answer and expound it, but I'll wait. We'll wait. All right, all right. You probably already read it, but anyway. The question before us today that I use Tish for is how are we as Christians to be Christ-like in an unchristian world? Now, I'm not saying that everybody who criticized her were not Christians. But what they said about her was not Christian. And how do we respond in a Christ-like way when people are responding to us in non-Christ-like ways? How do we respond? Many of us experience this in our jobs, perhaps in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And some of us experience just watching news as we identify with the people who are being critiqued or criticized? Well, I think Peter answers our questions. So I want to look at this text in 1 Peter chapter 3, partly because it has so many controversial verses in it that, that as a professor I like to talk about. And I wrote about many years ago, but I was afraid to look at my commentary for fear I disagree with what I wrote. <laughs> in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. We call this the down and up pattern, or the you pattern of the life of Christ, the descent before the ascent. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And now a little commentary. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body of the pledge of a clear conscience, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection and now Peter resumes this pattern, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
It is noticeable in Peter's letter, 1 Peter, that Peter appeals to Christ's life as a pattern for our living. And in particular, the Christians that Peter is writing to in Asia Minor, today's Turkey, up near Istanbul in that area, on the north side by the Black Sea, Peter knows that these Christians are suffering because they are following Jesus. And he says in chapter 2, verse 21, uh, speaking to the suffering of slaves, he says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. That's the word right there. He becomes the paradigm, the pattern, the the example of how we are to live, that you should follow in his steps. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Tish, experience this. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. That takes the sting out of the situation because to this you were called, and that expression is identical to what he means by following in the pattern of Christ so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter is not talking here about senseless violence, nor is he talking about how to respond in abusive situations, although some have applied it in this situation foolishly. He's talking about the context of suffering because of one's Christian faith, because of what one believes, because of where one stands in worldview. Peter wants to see that the proper response to unchristian responses is shaped by Christ's life and pattern on Christ's life, which was to suffer for the sake of others and only to be vindicated by God down the road following the suffering. He wants us to see that unjust suffering will be undone eventually because the suffering Christ was ultimately vindicated by God through the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God, where he has put in subjection the principalities and powers. So the operative words for us in looking to Christ in unjust situations when we are suffering as Christians are the words of verse 18, but made alive in the Spirit. And in verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, at God's right hand. Now, some of you seminary students and curious others will want to know about these odd expressions in these verses because they are indeed odd. And this is what seminary students do. They learn about these odd things. And then they don't get to talk about them. So I will. Peter says here something that when you read it, you go, wow, this is weird. Let's just go on. All right? He says, right? He says that Jesus has preached to spirits in bondage. Now, that's the title of C.S. Lewis's first book before he was a Christian. And he was talking about this passage. But he preached to spirits in bondage, weirdly, who who were imprisoned in the time of Noah. What in the world? Why? (laughs) Well, there's two interpretations of this, and 
and frankly, no one really knows, uh, but some people are very confident about what they know, so it sounds like they know. But here are the interpretations. The classic interpretation of the history of the church is found in the Apostles' Creed. That between the death and resurrection, Jesus descended into Hades, or hell. This is classic interpretation. This is what everybody's believed until Wayne Grudem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so there's some truth in that. I didn't mean it that way uh, when he was at this institution with me. All right, so, but this has been the classic, and the Eastern Orthodox on Holy Saturday make a huge deal of this and because they call it the harrowing of hell where Christ invaded the realm of the dead and he broke all the bonds. I mean, it's really a good message. But Protestants are worried about that because it sounds a little bit like a second chance, right? And then the next thing you got purgatory and the next thing it's Mary and the next thing, you know, it's the Pope and we're all out of sync. But this is, we have, you know, we're Protestants. We believe the Bible. And this is what it says. It says that somewhere between the death and the resurrection or after the resurrection, Jesus either preached to spirits in bondage or he declared victory over spirits in bondage. And that's a pretty standard interpretation. And my friend and former student Dennis Edwards in his new commentary on 1 Peter defends this new pretty, pretty widespread view that this did not occur between the death and resurrection. It occurred after the resurrection. As Jesus ascended into the heavens, he announced victory over all the spirits in prison. The problem with that interpretation, of course, is why locate that just to the people who died during the time of Noah? It's a pretty narrow group. So we don't know what this means, and I'll move to the second controversial issue in the topic. But what it does say is that Jesus was victorious. And that's the message that the Christians in Peter wanted to know. The second text is also confusing to many evangelicals, and that is that Peter says that this baptism now saves you. We would, many of us, would be much happier if he said faith saved you or Christ saved you rather than locating it in baptism. But he says that Noah's water symbolizes baptism, and that is how early Christians read the Old Testament. They saw things because of what they already believed about Christ. And he sees in the, in the saving of Noah through water uh, a glimmer, a flash of baptism in the Christian church. And he says this baptism saves you, and he emphasizes here in 1 Peter that it is accompanied by a pledge, a commitment to be obedient. But here's something that Bible believers should be aware of. And as Anglicans, we're not so afraid of this. And that is that the New Testament, baptism is connected to salvation in ways that can make some of us uncomfortable. But that's the New Testament, and you've got to deal with it. And that's what it says. I'll read three texts. Acts 2.38, Peter, the guy who's writing this letter, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, 
All right? Be baptized. They're suspended. In, in Greek, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 22, 16. Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And Hebrews 10 says, having our hearts sprinkled, this is language of baptism, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The fact is that the early Christians did not disconnect baptism from their redemption. They did not wait months and months and years to get baptized. They got baptized, and they saw baptism as connected because they were ritualized people. They could not imagine believing and not doing something and acting it out. It's only we in the post-Enlightenment world with a little Platonism tucked away in our back pocket that can separate physical action from spiritual realities. So Peter connects the two. I think it would be irresponsible for me to read this text and not make a few comments about this, but I would like to make now a very smooth transition back to where what we were talking about before. That's called a transition. All right? I indulged our curiosity because I think this is what happens when you read a text like this. Here's the big idea. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his descent, his ascent, his enthronement is the pattern for our faith and for how we encounter unchristian behavior in this world. We see what's going on to us and we say, how can I act in a way that demonstrates the pattern of Jesus? This is a great idea until you have to do it, right? Until you encounter someone who doesn't like you, who doesn't appreciate what you've said or doesn't like what you stand for, and you stand for it, and you say, now how can I be Christ-like? Well, Peter moves on. I think the, second, the first point is to let Christ's pattern be our pattern. The second one is do good anyway. And this is hard. Do good anyway. Nothing is more sin-cycle-breaking, anger-reversing, and morally challenging than being good in the face of evil. It is hard. The, inter- the internet does not do this well. Now, I have to, I'm going to bring in a, a politician here, but this is not political. I liked John Kasich's responses in political debates in the last election because he didn't play the game of being mean. I liked it. He's an Anglican. I thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> since we're talking about Anglicans. Peter quotes from the Old Testament here. He doesn't stand up and say, hey, I'm going to quote from the Old Testament for my support here. He just alludes to it and quotes it. And he says, he says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And this is language for uh, Israel that now Peter has applied to the church, to the Gentiles who are believing in Jesus. These words were God's words to Isaiah for how to respond to people in his day who were not responding faithfully to God's covenant. So Peter presses them to make Jesus Lord, which is way of affirming the deity of Christ. Honor Christ, reverence Christ as Lord in your life. 
and he calls them to do good. Now, this is very important for us in our setting. Peter uses the expression to do good, and this is the language in the Roman Empire for public benevolence. These are acts of, they call them benefactions in scholarship, where they did something good for communities, built a building, built a monument, gave money to the poor. One of the great illustrations is stealing food from a boat that's passing by a port and bringing it to your harbor so that your poor would have sufficient food, which is not really good, but it was called good in Peter's world. But Peter is talking here about public benefactions. And as we move into Highwood, one of the secrets to our, I think, I can say that by faith. Uh, As we move in, one of the secrets to our success in Highwood will be whether we become a blessing to the community or whether we just withdraw from the community. I had a student at Trinity many years ago And uh, he was a smart guy from Calvin and did not like Greek. And he was in my Greek class. And it wasn't going well until I discovered that he was a Cubs fan, and then everything was fine. (laughs) I said, I'm going to pass you anyway. He was pretty good. He he would say things like, I'm never going to use this stuff. Why are you wasting your money and my time? At any rate, so he starts a church, and I kind of wonder, what's going to happen with this guy who can't even read Greek? I mean, how can you start a church if you can't exegete First Peter and solve these problems? Well, it's going really well. And he had started a group, and they started getting bigger and bigger, and he, they made a commitment uh, when they started this church that they were going to be a blessing to the community with their uh, money that came in. And so they did something really weird. They went to the school board meeting, and they they said, we'd like to have just five minutes. And at the school board meeting, Mark Albrecht is his name, stood up and said, is there anything we can do for your school? And the school board director said, we have never had a church ask what they can do for us. They're always asking what we can do for them. And they said, oh, yeah, we got something you can do. And he said, we have a school that doesn't meet code. And as a result, we're busing students to a school in Zion, or Beach Park it was. And he said, we need that school to be brought into code. For a year, on Saturdays, everybody in the church gathered and brought that school building into code. Well, you, can, you know what kind of impact this had, is that People became Christians because of this community's behavior in the public. And not long ago, last January, they opened up their building. They finally, it took them forever because they used their money as a blessing in the community as well. And they built the main auditorium as a gymnasium because the town of Antioch needs a place for kids to play basketball. So this is what Peter is talking about here. In the midst of evil, when you're experiencing negative, do good anyway. And the third suggestion he has is speak well anyway. Speak well. And he says in, uh, I lost my, my Bible so small I can't see anything here. All right. 
But in your hearts, and this in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord goes with both directions. It's both a summary and a launching to the next point. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And Peter says, but I've got some advice for you. Don't be know-it-all apologists who pound on people's heads. He said, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. When you do good to people who are doing evil, frequently the response is that they become shamed for what they've done. And so Peter takes this strategy, speak well anyway. Know some solid answers to questions that come your way. You can't know everything, you know. Google it. Or ask Jay. Or Arnie. Arnie likes apologetic. Ask people who get into these questions. There's frequently answers, but people often don't even want answers. They want to express their problem. And if you go with them through their problem, that you can help them. Speak gently and respectfully so that you sense you spoke in a way that honors Christ, who died for other people and only then was vindicated, and back it up with good behavior. So now you're asking about Tish and her response to crowd pounding. It was beautiful. And the crowd pounding ended. Because she responded, she said, each Sunday, she's a priest, I stand before my congregation and I proclaim that I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So they give the creed. I do not think, she says, that Jesus has given up on the church, visible or invisible. She says, I want the church to preserve the deposit of faith that we've inherited. And that's why she's concerned about monitoring of people saying things with big platforms that are careless and irresponsible and unorthodox in the Christian faith, and they're influencing lots of people. And I want to live out that faith lovingly as an alternative city and a faithful, loving people. And I feel a responsibility to work toward that institutional, uh, institutionally and call others to do the same. And she apologized for things that she said that may have been misunderstood and said, if I said them wrong, I will correct them. She says, I'm sure that this does not adequately address all my critics or those particular criticisms. But I offer these responses humbly, knowing that my piece was certainly not perfect. Though I've been saddened about the vitriolic nature that some of these conversations have assumed, I am very grateful for a great many of the conversations that it is spawning. She says, I'm hopeful that this will make us more faithful. Her response ended the crowd pounding. She followed Peter's advice, probably didn't even know it was Peter's advice, but maybe as an Anglican she was preparing way ahead for this Sunday, knowing that this is what is coming down the road. She was firm in her faith. She was gentle and she was respectful. And she is known in her community for good works. 
it would have been very hard not to strike back. But she went the way of Jesus, and she models for us exactly what Peter is calling us to do, to respond in grace to people when it's an unchristian response we're experiencing. So let's look to Jesus. Let's do good anyway, and let's speak well anyway.